This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, we're discussing pediatric vaccination with Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Thanks so much for joining us again, Dr. Offit. Uh, the recent authorization of the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds came as a relief to a lot of parents, I'm sure, as we head into um, winter and another holiday season. Are we just in time? What, what are we seeing with COVID cases right now among this group? Well, so you know that in the five to 11 year old age group, which comprises about 28 million children, you know that about 2 million children have been infected, that about 8,300 have been hospitalized, that a third of those who've been hospitalized have had to go to the intensive care unit. You also know that about a third of those who were hospitalized had no comorbidities that would have put them at higher risk of severe disease. And more than 100 children that age have died. I think that, the, the, frankly, the scariest part of this, this disease occurs in that age group, and that's the so-called multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children, or MIS-C which presents usually as a, as a initially as an as asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection that was just picked up serendipitously. And then the child stops shedding the virus. A month later, they come to the hospital with high fever, pneumonia, and then involvement of heart, liver, and kidney, and occasionally have to go to the intensive care unit. That's a five to 13-year-old phenomenon with a peak at nine years of age. And so we don't really understand it about what caused it, but it can lead to longer-term symptoms. I think when I try and, and convince parents to get uh, a vaccine in that age group. That's actually the example I use. And, you know, I think maybe it was just kind of the narrative that started with this, but a lot of people think that kids in that age group are just not at risk or the outcomes are not serious. What, what's led to that? How do we counteract that? Well, certainly when the virus first came into this country early last year, the mantra, and it was true, was children get infected less frequently, and when they're infected, they're infected less severely. That's true. And at the time, early last year, children accounted for actually fewer than 3% of cases. Today, it's closer to 27%. I mean, this variant, the Delta variant, has reached down into that susceptible age group, and now you can say that this is certainly a childhood illness. So, um, and children can be affected so that they are have to suffer or be hospitalized or die. It's a, if you can prevent this disease um, uh, safely, then it's a disease worth preventing. Well, the good news is we do have a, a new tool in the armament, so to speak, which is the vaccine for this five to 11 year old age group. Um, but kids uh, in this age group are not gonna be fully vaccinated by Thanksgiving. It could be by winter break. What? You know, as we think about coming up on Thanksgiving here, what's your advice to parents who have kids that are, are not fully vaccinated or who are not yet eligible for a vaccine? Right. So, so for the 5 to 11-year-old who would have gotten a single dose, but the second dose, which would be given three months later, sort of straddles the Thanksgiving holiday, so they would have only had one but not two doses. So that child's not fully vaccinated. But still, I think that they should still participate in the Thanksgiving holidays, even with grandparents, just realize they're not fully vaccinated yet. So mask, do the best they can to social distance, and then get that second dose when required. So in terms of uh, the decision, we obviously need to get parents on board. And you, you've acknowledged that it's 
It's difficult to make decisions for millions of children based on data from thousands of children. Uh, but you've also said that it's not whether we know everything, it's about whether we know enough. How, how do physicians reassure patients, parents, uh, that we now know enough to, recognize, uh, to recommend vaccinating this group? Right, so, so um, we're either parent of a, a five to 11 year old about to vaccinate them. I, I would worry about this very, very rare side effect of myocarditis, you know, inflammation of the heart muscle, which although for the most part is transient and self-resolving and short-lived, still there no doubt over time will be a spectrum of illness with that. But I, I think there are several things that are reassuring. First, while the, the incidence of myocarditis in roughly that sort of 16 and older group is in the sort of one in 50,000 range, and for the younger group, the 16 to 17 year old is, is somewhat higher than that, uh, we can be reassured that the study is now in the 12 to 15 year old for whom a vaccine has been available now for months. It looks like the incidence of myocarditis is less in that age group. That's reassuring. Secondly, the dose that's given to the five to 11 year old is a third, the dose that was given to the 12 to 15 year old. So I think that's also reassuring. And, and know that, that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, can cause myocarditis. I mean, about it depends on which study you look at, but as, as many as one in 45 people who get SARS-CoV-2 will have evidence either of clinical or subclinical of myocarditis and miss C this multi-system inflammatory disease of children is associated with myocarditis roughly half to 75% of the time. And, and the myocarditis associated with the viral infection or myocarditis associated with this MIS-C, this post-infectious uh, phenomenon, is more severe than is the myocarditis associated with the vaccine. So there are never risk-free choices. There are just choices to take different risks. And I think here, clearly the choice is to get a vaccine, which is the less lesser risk. And if I heard you say correctly up front, you said a population of about 28 million in this age group. And I, did you say 2 million had, had already had COVID? Is that, did I kept, catch that right? That's right. So that's, we're close to one in 10. This is a lot of kids in this age group that have gotten COVID. And what you're saying is these, the risks associated with that are, you know, very, and they're higher than getting the, the vaccine itself is what you're saying. Right. If you, if you look at the study that was done, the 2400 child study that was done in the five to 11 year old age group, there were 1600 children who got uh, the vaccine, 800 who got placebo. Well, of the, the 800 who got placebo, 16 got COVID. That's a 2% attack rate. That's one in 50. That's not so small. So I think when people think, you know, this is not going to affect my child, uh, very well may affect this, your, their child. And now you're moving into a situation where we're moving into winter. This is basically at its heart a winter virus. Children are going to be gathering together inside, uh, you know, a, a largely susceptibly either unvaccinated or undervaccinated population. It's not, it's a recipe for, for uh, disaster. And I think we need to protect our children now more than ever. I do think as we move into February, March of next year, with a larger percentage of people who are, are going to have been vaccinated and unfortunately a, a an additional percentage of people who've been naturally infected and you move into warmer weather i think we'll see, see things come down again and maybe stay down for a while but for right now i think it's a somewhat dangerous time so there are a lot of reasons that um parents give for not vaccinating their their, their kids there's uh, you know, fear of allergic reactions and side effects and and then there are basic fears of kids don't like needles. Um, how have pe uh, pediatricians traditionally counteracted these fears and, and what can others who are providing vaccines and vaccine information learn from them? 
I think there was a fellow we had in our in our um, group a number of years ago who now is at Harvard, and she had a uh, nephew who was about five years old. He was about to go in and get his his four to six year old shots, which can mean as many as four or five, five shots at one time. So she explained to him what the purpose of vaccines were, how they worked and what he could expect. So then she goes with him to the doctor's office and she's waiting outside while the, the child is getting the vaccine. So she, now she's nervous. The door opens up. Her five-year-old nephew walks out. He puts his hands up in the air and he shouts, I'm immune. That's what you're going for. So I think we need to try and explain to the parent and to the child, you know, that this makes them superheroes. This makes them Superman. Now the virus or bacteria can just bounce off them. I think we need to do the best we can to do that. Well, as you know, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, misinformation sticks with people more than the truth, more than the facts. And we continue to have a great deal of it out there circulating around these uh, around the topic of vaccines, you know what are the top things that you're hearing from parents, uh, particularly in regard to vaccinating their kids, and how are you addressing that? Right. Well, surprisingly, one of the things I hear from parents is that they're afraid that they'll render their child infertile, that the child then wouldn't be able to ultimately uh, have their own children. This is just one that never dies. I mean, it's it's not true. There's abundant evidence that there, it isn't true. I mean, it was born of the notion that the, the thinking was that if you're making an immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, what you're doing when you get a vaccine, that you're also inadvertently making an immune response to a protein that sits on the surface of placental call cells called syncytin-1. Um, that's not true. Those two proteins are immunologically distinct. And were that true, then remember, we've had more than 100 million people who've been infected with this virus in this country over the last year and a half. They also have been making an immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So if that's true, what's happened to the birth rate over this period of time? And the answer is it stayed the same. So it's just not true. It was based on a false notion. And you know, you try the best you can, but you're right. It's really hard to unscare people once you've scared them. It's hard to unring the bell, no matter how often you try and, and get good information out there. There's some things are made to stick and some of this misinformation is made to stick. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. Well, unfortunately, too, the, the anti-vax movement, it's strong, it's, it's well-coordinated, and we've seen its devastating impact with about 100,000 lives lost due, due to COVID, even after vaccines were available. Um, the AMA has been working to elevate physician voices, and in fact, you... Uh, had a little cameo role in our uh, science and storytelling video that we did with our sections uh, this, uh, this past week. Um, how do you make sure physician voices are heard at this critical time above all the rest of the noise? Um, it's hard. 
um, we are drawn to conspiracy theories, I think in many ways because they're reassuring. You know, a, a pandemic in a sense is chaos. It's not clear where it started. And certainly at the beginning, it wasn't clear, you know, exactly how it was spread, masking versus not masking. You know, can I walk into a grocery store? Can I get it if I touch, you know, a piece of fruit that other people have touched? I mean, there was so much uncertainty initially. You know, hydroxychloroquine, you know, was, was approved through emergency use authorization, convalescent plasma, things that didn't work. And and I think what's what's what the conspiracy theorists do is they provide order out of chaos. They say, look, here's how it started. A lab in Wuhan, you know, Tony Fauci was behind it, the NIH was behind it, the World Health Organization was behind it, Bill Gates was behind it. There's these evildoers behind the curtain that you don't see. And then they, they you know, masking is dangerous. Um, you know, there's healing microbes in the water, so you can go to the beaches. So don't wear a mask. Vaccines are dangerous. Vaccines don't work. You know, vaccines can give you the, the disease. And so don't mask, don't social distance, don't, you know, still go to the beach. And and it was just done by these evildoers. They're, they're, you know, they're creating COVID statistics that are incorrect and that's all in many ways seductive because it's sort of what you want to hear and it's wrong it's completely wrong and science ultimately will also create order out of chaos it also will create its own narrative and when that happens then that that will be a correct narrative and polio is no different if you look back at polio in the early 1900s nobody knew what caused it and there were all these crazy notions of of how it was caused all these crazy notions of how it was cured and that was very seductive in many ways until we then found out what virus caused it, how to prevent it, and then everything settled out and we virtually eliminated that virus from this country. We did eliminate it by the late 70s. So I just think it's the, these competing narratives and the conspiracy theory narrow narrative, amazingly enough, thrives in part because it does create order out of chaos. You could make the same argument actually for Andrew Wakefield claiming that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. Autism at some level is chaotic. We don't have a clear cause or cause. We don't certainly don't have a cure. He provided both. Here's the cause. Here are these evildoers, pharmaceutical companies, MMR vaccine caused it. If you want to avoid getting autism, just avoid getting that vaccine. And it was in many ways seductive, even though it was wrong and did a lot of harm. That's what you're up against. It's hard. It's hard to fight that. Well, uh, one of the tools that we've been uh, seeing out there that has increased vaccination rates are our vaccine mandates. Uh, you've been a, uh, a vocal uh, uh, person about mandates as being a way that we can push that vaccine, uh, vaccination rate forward. Do you think uh, that the COVID vaccine should join the list? of immunizations that are mandated by schools? Yes. I mean, do, does this virus fall into the same category as other viruses that are, for which we have mandates? Of course, right now we're in the midst of a, a massive pandemic. More than 700 children have died. Yes. In a better world, you should need mandates. In a better world, parents look at the data and get this vaccine every time. We don't live in that world. There's a lot of misinformation out there that causes parents to make bad decisions for themselves and their children. And so sometimes you just have to compel people to do the right thing by mandating a vaccine. I, the interesting thing to me is if you look at a, a state like Mississippi, which has actually a pretty low rate of COVID-19 vaccination, um, and as a consequence has a higher rate of, of disease, they are the answer to the question, what state in the union has the highest rate of, of, of vaccination among its school children at 99%? That's Mississippi, because they're one of only two states that never had philosophical or religious exemptions to vaccines, they and West Virginia. I mean, these are two states that are very high on the list of childhood vaccination rates, not states necessarily known for their public health achievements. Mm. Well, I'm grateful for vaccine mandates at school because that saved my daughter's senior year at college. So that is working. And now as we look forward to 
next school year, say August 2022, do you think that the COVID vaccine is going to be on the required immunization list? If not, why, why wouldn't it be? I think it should be. I mean, we're, we're going to have to have a highly vaccinated population, a highly protected population, as long as this virus circulates in the world, which I imagine is going to be at least years, if not decades. Um, we still give a polio vaccine every year in this country, even though we haven't had polio in this country since the 1970s. Why? Because polio still exists in Afghanistan, still exists in Pakistan. Here, this virus is going to be circulating in the world for a while. So if you let your guard down and just, again, you know, bring in generations of children who are unvaccinated and just increase the percentage of the population that's unprotected, I think you just keep us at a higher risk unnecessarily. Well, uh, turning the subject to boosters, uh, they're not yet authorized for kids, but they are authorized uh, for many adults. Two out of every three vaccinated people are eligible, according to some estimates. You've called the rush to get boosted uh, booster mania and believe that it, it could be harmful to our overall efforts to reach unvaccinated kids and adults. Why, why is that? I think we need to make it clear in our messaging what the goal of this vaccine is. I mean, the, the, the goal as it was originally stated, which I think was a fair and reasonable goal, was to protect against serious illness, meaning to protect against the kind of illness that causes people to have to either go, go to a doctor or go to a hospital or go to an ICU, protect against serious illness. Well, these vaccines do that. They do that because they, they create immunological memory cells, memory B cells. And, and all the studies that have been done, frankly, looking at people who are naturally infected or vaccinated, shows that memory B cells still persist at relatively high frequency up until the present time. And that is consistent with the epidemiological studies that show that protection against serious illness has persisted up to this time. But what we did with this vaccine, I think, and this virus is we've had some um, communication struggles. I think the biggest communication struggle was born of an outbreak of this virus in Provincetown, Massachusetts around July 4th. Thousands of men get together to celebrate July 4th in Provincetown. 79% um, of them are vaccinated. 346 of those who are vaccinated get COVID. Um, of those 346, four are hospitalized for a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. That's good. That's a vaccine that's working well. Unfortunately, to describe the, those, those people who, despite being vaccinated, had an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, we use the term breakthrough illness. That's not a breakthrough. That's what you want the vaccine to do. You want the vaccine to protect you against serious illness. And that outbreak showed you that it did. But instead of that carrying that story as the positive story that it should have been, we carried it as, oh my God, even if you're vaccinated, you can develop an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, which is true of virtually all mucosal vaccines, whether it's rotavirus, whooping cough, uh, uh, influenza, those vaccines aren't very good at preventing asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, but they keep you out of the hospital and keep you from dying. That's the reasonable goal for any vaccine. And I think it's been confusing. So regarding the booster dose, now we've sort of shifted to what happens over time is neutralizing antibodies decline. True. What happens over time is protection against infection, i.e. asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection declines over time. True. And so we need to prevent that by giving a booster dose. Well, if that's true, this isn't going to be the end of it. 
because neutralizing antibodies, even after a third dose, will begin to decline, and you'll also see an increase in infection rate. We just have to define what it is we want from these vaccines. I think that we're the, that, that if the goal is protection against serious illness, which I think is a reasonable goal here, the only group in whom it's clearly been shown, I think, just in terms of studies, that benefit from a third dose as compared to two doses are people over 70 years of age. I, I think that's true there. I don't think it hurts us to do this. The one thing that does bother me in this, and you could see it in the, the discussions at the ACIP, and you could see it in the discussions with the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, was the number 18. That, that's what really people didn't, didn't like. That's, what, that's where there was pushback. Because the 18 to 29-year-old is at increased risk of myocarditis. Now, it's a rare risk, but it's real. And it's associated primarily in, in boys and men, and primarily after the second dose. Why the second dose? Because that's a booster dose. That's that's when you get the the a higher level of, of uh, neutralizing antibodies and the other things, the other chemokines or cytokines that seem to be likely associated with this transient myocarditis. The third dose is has a threefold greater immune response for Pfizer's vaccine than that second dose. So so do I think that there could be then um, a more myocarditis? Yes. And, and so then the question becomes, is that 18 to 29 year old clearly benefit from that third dose? And I just don't think. We've communicated this well, and now with sort of the basically going, going, uh, um, having many states simply saying we're going to do this for everybody over 18, we've just kind of bypassed the process, I think, through the, the FDA or CDC to, to be able to allow the public to hear why it is that some of us are reticent about this. Does it make you wonder, uh, one of the key things we learned is that probably 50% of this can be around communication, sometimes I think that has just played such an enormous role. At least 50%. I, I think when President Biden, and I think everybody's intention is good here. I think we're all trying to do the right thing. But I think when President Biden stood up in mid-August and said, you know, we're going to have a booster dose for everybody over 16, what he did inadvertently was he just sent out the, the, no, the notion that you weren't fully protected with two doses. And then, you know, in a week, the CDC had a meeting and had a slide that said you are fully vaccinated at two doses. And, you know, it's just been really, I think, confusing for people. Well, last question, you know, we've got this big group, another 28 million people that are now eligible for the vaccine with the latest authorization. You know, is there a magic number here that we need to get to uh, for us to be able to finally move beyond this pandemic? And is that attainable in the coming months? I think it was attainable at the beginning. I think I think the number is um, probably to the low to mid 90% range for population immunity, meaning people who are either naturally infected or vaccinated or both, because those are overlapping groups. Um, we're probably at about 80% right now. The the five to 11 year old represents 28%, 28 million people is roughly uh, a little less than 10% of the population. So sure, I think that, that, um, that if, all parents decided to vaccinate those children, that would certainly contribute to herd immunity. But that's not an argument I would ever make for a parent, which is that you're vaccinating your child to protect others. You're vaccinating your child to protect your child. But again, there's you know, a solid 60 million people who aren't vaccinated. Uh, many of them are adults. And, um, you know, I, I just what upsets me is that 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 should be the issue. I, I think Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, said it best. She said, we're not going to boost our way out of this pandemic. That's right. We need to vaccinate the unvaccinated more so than boosting um, the vaccinated I can tell you with the intensive care units at our hospital or the adult hospital next door, you know, people are in the intensive care unit, not because they haven't gotten their third dose or there because they haven't gotten any doses. Is that number uh, you said kind of a number above 90 percent? Is that bigger than we thought it was going to be? I, for some reason, remember a smaller number than that uh, when we first went into this. 
I think Delta changed that number. Mm -hmm. the, the, the contagiousness index, the R naught of Delta is much higher than the original uh, variant that came in this country, the D614G variant and the alpha variant, the second variant. So this this third variant, the Delta variant, I think has changed that. There's actually a formula for this. It's R naught minus one over R naught divided by vaccine efficacy. So if you have an R naught and the R naught of Delta is expected to be between five and nine, um, it's obviously a mutable number because it kind of depends where you live. But um, because obviously I'm going to spread more of, to other people if I live in New York City than if I live in rural Montana. But, you know, five minus one over five is 0.8. And then if you divide that by the vaccine efficacy, and this is generous to say 90 percent because it really should be protection against contagiousness. 0.8 divided by 0.9 is 0.9. And so I think that's the lowest number. We're, we're, get, we're getting there. I really do think we're getting there. And I think if, when we were giving three and a half to four million doses a, a day many months ago, if we'd stayed on that course, we'd be there now. We could look in the rear view at some level at this pandemic now, but we, we just refused, a critical percentage of this population refused to be vaccinated. Well, Dr. Offit, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Your perspective, uh, always just so interesting and important. That's it for today's COVID-19 update video and podcast. We'll be back soon with another segment. In the meantime, for resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Uh, our next episode, uh, Monday, November 29th. In the meantime, have a safe and healthy holiday. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts, available wherever you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.